I want to start off by asking a question, and I'll lead with this question to say, if you could name one thing this week, if you could boil it down to one thing, might be more, uh, but what has taken the highest priority this week? What has captured your mind this week? That when you leave this parking lot today and you drive away, what are you heading to? Whether mentally, physically, what are you guys, what have you been doing? And when the end of work or the workday happens or you're done with school or taking care of kids and when that last kid finally goes to sleep after they get out of bed, uh, what, where is your mind going? Or why are you trying to get the, bed, the kids to bed so quickly? What are you trying to get to? And so some of those things might be anxieties. Some of them might be hopes. It might be yourself dealing with your own character. Uh, my thoughts have gone back to it might be your past. It might be what you're looking forward to in the future. Uh, maybe it's these people. Maybe it's us. Maybe your mind keeps going back to different conversations you've had this week. But I want, I want that to be the question that leads into today. And so be thinking about that. And I think when we are asked that question, probably for most of us, you already know what that answer is immediately because you've been thinking about it. So I want to lead into our text today that way. I'm going to pray, um, and then we'll hop in here. God, I thank you for time and space, community. Thank you for fellowship. I thank you for that song. I pray that it would be the heart behind what we're reading today. Father, that you are big and strong and powerful, and that's what Paul is trying to remind Timothy over and over of who you are. I pray that you would remind us that this would not be a time to check out, but a time to listen, a time to slow down for a moment to hear from, from you, our God. I pray that you would calm my heart. I pray that you would give us ears to hear. God, that you would be with us in this room today. Amen. All right, so I'm going to come back to that question at the end, uh, but for this letter to Timothy, Paul starts off in the first few chapters, he's dialing in on these false teachers, and he's addressing their sin or their, their lack of repentance, and then he pivots here, and he turns to the church, and we have went through that the last few weeks. If you've been with us, we talked about elders and deacons and kind of roles within the church. And he talks about what leadership lo should look like as we walk this out in faithfulness and unity under that leadership. And then as Paul, he compares and contrasts a lot, which if you remember back to when we walked through Mark, we saw Jesus do that a lot. He'll say this thing, and then he'll say that thing to bring attention to whatever that is. And, and Paul often models the way that Jesus teaches. He'll, he'll take a scenario right in front of him, and G Jesus is teaching on a beach or a hillside, and he says, hey, look at the field or look at the birds. And so what Paul does is he does the same thing. He says, look at these people that are affecting our lives right now. This is the way they do things, but here's how God works. Compare and contrast. He says, here's the way that earthly leaders and cultures have distorted the intention that God had here. But in contrast, here is the way that you and the kingdom of God should live. And then we get here, as we're walking out of chapter 3, he closes and he pauses for this moment. It's kind of kind of weird moment that he summarizes again, and then he writes this poem at the end. And so in these three verses, Paul 
does this summation of the whole chapter, and I want to read just the first two verses to start off. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things. We're in chapter 3, verse 14. Sorry about that. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. And so as I, I read this, I keep reflecting back on who this Paul guy is. And if you've read that story, it comes out of Acts 9, of just his conversion story. It's really crazy and beautiful, one of the most colorful pictures that we get in Scripture. It's just lots happening in this encounter that he has with the Christ, with Jesus, as he runs into him on that road to Damascus. And what Jesus does is he slowly starts to unravel for Paul what he has been captivated by. Kind of that question, what has captivated you? What has captivated Saul at the time? And he knocks him to the ground, and he leads him through this series of events to ponder and think about where his allegiance, his allegiance lies, to go back and evaluate all the works that he's done and the years that he's put into all these things. And he says to Paul that you are in direct opposition to me because you have been attacking my disciples. You have been persecuting my people. And so Jesus absolutely interrupts Paul's life. And he gives him this time to drink in what God is about to reveal to him. And my mind went to kind of a Christmas carol, right? This Ebenezer Scrooge type scenario of leading him along these paths so that he can evaluate. And so you get this elderly miser of a guy, someone that is angry and against God, and he, he turns him, transforms him into a generous and kind human being. But the, the scavenger hunt that God sends him on is not ordinary in any way. If you remember that, he blinds Paul, and he sends him into the city, and he makes him be led by the hand of someone else. And so you've got this guy that is holding all power in this scenario as, an, as a leader in the church or in the temple, and for three days he doesn't eat and he can't do things on his own, and he can't even direct himself to a bathroom or where to go. He has to be directed. So he goes from high status, all power, to nothingness at the mercy of God. And then decades later, we're here. It's the same guy. Now his name is Paul, from Saul to Paul, and he's writing to Timothy, and these things are still fresh on his mind. You see the analogies of light and darkness, you see the contrast he has between that old guy and this new guy. And he reflects often in his writings, whether directly or you can read it through there, of just the spiritual significance of a Jewish rabbi being physically blinded by the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's not lost on this Saul. And then much of the verses in, in Luke and Acts describes God's final salvation, what he's giving to men as a recovery of sight. And so it goes along with that Paul story, that he's giving sight to the blind, and he's making you a light to the nations. And so the Jews, especially the, ra the rabbis like Saul, use this image as a guide to the blind to, to describe their God-given role to what they thought was to this pagan world. But then we have here Paul or Saul getting knocked to the ground by Jesus Christ and saying, you've missed it. You're not that. I am. 
And, the, and so he thought he was God's gift to man, and God says, you're not even close. And so he, he awakens him to the reality of who this Jesus is. And so Paul, or Saul at the moment, meditates on this light that he's encountered in these three days of darkness. And the greatness of the divinely promised salvation only available in Jesus Christ. And so the last person that he saw before he was blinded was Jesus. And in Acts 26, you get these cool verses in 17 and 18 of what's happening here and the impact that is going to mean not only for Paul and the people of that day, but for you, for me, and how this truth will prevail and give us freedom. And then Paul, or he describes to Paul the role that he's going to play. If you read that, I'll read this from the top. Uh, Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so Saul is trying to figure out what to make of this blindness. And as I read through there, some of my questions were, is this a punishment? No. Is this an indication that the Lord is divinely irritated with him? No. Or is it simply a way to prove that he had a vision from the Lord? Nope. But as Jesus often does, he gives Paul this active parable that we've talked about so often in the Gospels. He gives this blindness to him to show his spiritual bankruptcy or how in the dark these Jewish rabbis have been the whole time, how blind they really were. And he makes Paul a walking example of that. And that's his conversion story. It's pretty epic. And, and there's more to it than that. Uh, we don't always have that story, but it's the same that he's done for us. Where he's taking blind men, people who were against God, and giving them a story of opening up their eyes and, tr- and tasting true freedom. And so he's recounting all this as he writes this letter to Timothy. We're almost halfway through it, and yet he's still overwhelmed in this goodness. After years and years of being freed, he's still overwhelmed by the light that he has received from the Lord. And it's often in that, in that those life-changing moments, sometimes dark moments, sometimes when we don't have enough money, when everyone seems against us, when we failed royally, it's in these moments God-disrupting moments that we see clearly, that we see our neediness. Sometimes it's not that we're failures. It's just that we need the Lord. And God makes these moments of pain so that we can trust truly in the one who came for all men. And so from here, God clearly uses Paul's remaining years, like those verses in Acts, to show the church who he is. He makes Paul a vagabond, someone that's going from town to town, city to city, has no home, so that he can establish the churches along the way. And if you read that Acts 9 story, it just, I mean, it's the first stanza in Amazing Grace. It's Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And that's Paul's story. That's his from day one where he met Jesus. And so I want to open up with that in mind 
and hear these verses in our text today. I'm going to read the whole thing. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. This same Paul, this, this Saul that is now Paul, he writes this. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And so as I read that, my mind kept going back to that calling, that story of what Jesus revealed to him in those very first days of, these are Paul's people. You are my people. There's a calling here that he's, he's woven together with them in what the Lord has given to them. And that's how we are in this room. And Paul is caring for them. And he waited patiently for Timothy to grow up into this leader so that he could place him in that place of leadership, not as one to lord over, but to steward the church and to encourage them. And then he writes that he misses them. He's like, I, I want to come to you. I hope. There's longing there. I don't know if I will, but I hope to. But I feel I might be delayed. And that's because he's invested years and months. It's very much my story with you guys. And some of y'all are new, but we, I've got almost a decade of time with y'all. And so there's, there's things that we've walked through that are difficult and joyous, and it bonds us in that. And this is who Paul is writing to, the church in Ephesus and Timothy, who he spent so much time. And he says, I hope to come to you. But knowing the conditions of the land and where he's going to from city to city, and he's got to minister to some other churches, and then he's got Rome and the Jews on his back. Uh, that conversion story, if you read in Acts 9, they're against him. They seek out to kill him in that chapter. And that's still going on with the church, this power struggle in the land. And so he's got that on him where he writes and says, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know when I will be there, but I'm coming I hope. And so he doesn't just leave the believers in the dark. He doesn't write them a letter and say, hey, I'm hope, I hope to come, get there when I get there. But he writes to them and says, in the meantime, here's some specific things that I've heard about that have arisen there, and I'm concerned for you, I'm praying for you. I want you to pay attention. That in my absence, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So there's a lot of grace in those words, that he's not sitting there to this young church and saying, what are you doing? He's not scoffing at them because they lack answers. And I think that's often where we find ourselves. We don't have the answers, and so we're like, what's wrong with me? These guys seem to have it together. Well, what's wrong with me? And Paul notices that as an elder and someone who has wisdom, and he affirms them. This is new territory, right? I don't have this expectation for you, Ephesus, that you should go forward in this. But he writes to them to say, God is literally writing history with you in this moment and in this new family called the household of God. And so he gives them much grace as we continue to walk into chapter 4. And he describes here, if you'll look at this, three ways. He wants to make sure they know, regardless of what's happening in circumstances, that they know their identity. And so he describes us, the church, in three ways. He says, you are the household of God, 
that can be translated to family, the family of God. We are the church of the living God and then a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so I want to talk through those three things because I think it's pivotal for who we are as the household of God, as the family of God, as these things that are holding up the truth. And so he says the household of God, which could mean building or family. And if we read through the writings of Paul, he uses it interchangeably. So do the other writers. But he says here, or in this book, when he says the household of God, he's not talking about a structure typically. He's talking about a family in every other scenario, except this one where it's not as clear. So most people assume that he's still using that language to talk about this community. So it's a very family, close-knit feel that he's talking to them. And, but he doesn't dwell on it too much. He just uses that line and moves on. But in his other writings, he talks about this adoption. And he talks about how we've been placed into the righteousness of God. And so he, he doesn't get to emphasize here the fact that what he does in all the other writings, but we can assume. Because in his other writings, he talks about that we are God's children and we have equal dignity before the, before the Lord. So regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of age, kids, mom and dad, grandparents in this room, or culture, where we come from. There's many countries in this room. For a small community, we have a lot of countries in this room. And so what he's saying to this church, that as children of God, sisters and brothers together, we are called into loving unity to bear with and encourage one another and enjoying this great faith, as he calls it, and godliness we have been given that celebrates the diversity in this room, that celebrates everything that God is doing in the church. And so when we're unified in that, that despite all the things that could cause problems and make us against each other, it's a profound statement, something to marvel at within the church or in this community. And so he says, you are, we are, the household or family of God. And then secondly, he refers to us as the church of the living God. So he kind of just slightly changes that and says, the living God. And it's a, it's a cool, interesting phrasing because this is pretty common language in the Old Testament. The Old Testament often refers to Yahweh as the living God. And it's, it's this contrast between the pagans' lifeless man-made idols. We see that take place in the Old Testament so much. We address idolatry, and we address all these pagan rituals, even into these cities in the New Testament church that they're living in. And in Joshua 3, Joshua makes a statement when he talks about this living God, and he tells them where this living God resides. And in verse 10 of Joshua 3, he says, this living God is among you, God's people, the family of God. And so this wasn't necessarily news, but again, Paul is reminding the people of the church what their identity is, who this God is, and where he's at. He's not out here, but he is with us. And the crazy thing is, looking back at the Old Testament, it, it seems like he's a little distant, though. He's in the Ark of the Covenant, or he, his glory resides around this temple. And so when that curtain in the New Testament rips on the day that Jesus' death takes place, it was this huge, exciting, symbolic meaning that probably at the time 
They didn't understand or didn't know it even had taken place until they saw it. But it's this symbolic meaning of how the living God would go on to characterize us, the church. So not only does he reside in proximity, he's not only close to us, but we are the temple of this living God. And if you want to write this down, 1 Corinthians 3.16, 2 Corinthians 6.16. wasn't going to read these, but my wife told me I should, so I will. 1 Corinthians 3.16-17, I'm just going to read this one. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. We are that temple. And so he resides in us. That's what Paul is trying to proclaim to this church, that God is active here. And I think for us, for me personally, it's, it's difficult sometimes that when we leave this building or we leave small group or we leave a good meal with each other, and as we go scattered out in our week, it's often difficult to remember that truth. And I've said this many times, I don't feel too much shame over it, but you roll up to small group and sometimes you're like, oh, like I don't, we could be doing so many other things, right? That's how I've been in the past. Or we have arguments on the way to small group, right? Life gets difficult, I forget things. And then you go to small group or you go here and you're reminded of truths and you're humbled under what Christ has done for you and you take your, yourself a peg down, right? And the Lord reminds us through each other what he's doing. The church, ecclesia, the assembly of this living God, that in every aspect of our life, he's enriching us through the awareness of what God has done and is doing when we gather. It's a really beautiful thing. That when we just sang those song, this song, when we're about to sing a few more, that when we worship, it's not just me worshiping and you over there and him and her, but it's us. It's a communal thing. That by being up here and unpacking God's word or the way that you do that in your own home and you read through God's word and you teach, it's not just me teaching and you receiving, but it's us learning, right? We're doing this together. And I hear God's voice that it's not just for Carrie, but it's for us. And as we come to this table like we do every week and we partake, that it's not just for me and my family, but it's for us. And so we have this really awesome, beautiful reminder every Sunday of what the Lord's doing and how he's called us to love each other just as he has loved us, the church of the living God. And then thirdly, lastly, Paul addresses the church not only as a family of God, not only as the church of the living God, but that phrasing, which is probably the oddest of the three, but as a pillar and buttress of the truth. And whether intentional or not, he's in Ephesus, and so he makes an affront to them. He kind of calls out the people of Ephesus, the Ephesians, because of where he's found, and he uses this, this phrasing, and it's, it's huge because there's this temple in Ephesus, and it's to Diana or Artemis, and it was their version of the Roman or Greek goddess of fertility. And... Uh, this goes way back in their history. They are a city of idols. 
They are idol worshipers in the city. So the fact that Ephesus even has a church is by the hand of God. And so he addresses this specific pagan temple in Ephesus because it's a work of art. It's something every Ephesian could reference. They knew it. They've seen it. It had a hundred finely shaped and crafted columns on the front, and each were over 30 foot tall, and it hosted this beautiful, shiny, marble, expensive roof. And then just through study, buttresses and columns aren't always seen. I mean, you know that in your own house. You've got things that you, some of you have taken them out and had to put a support beam because you had ugly columns in the middle of the house. So sometimes they're not seen. Sometimes they're hidden in walls. So the point isn't the pillars or the columns, uh, but they're part of the architecture that hold up the roof to, to show the structure and display it in its glory. And so when Paul's referencing this, they, they would have had a visual almost right in front of them of what he's talking about. And so he gives them two functions of responsibility in this text. He says, through being this, this third identity that I'm casting over you or that God is laying out for you, we are to stand firm on the foundation so as not to buckle under the weight of the lies and the false teaching that he's been addressing. And then secondly, your second function as this pillar or buttress is to hold high the roof and structure and so we're to hold up the truth for all to see. And so specifically how that plays out for us is by standing firm, we, the church of the living God, are to advocate, and through the way that we live and we treat each other, we confirm this gospel and for everyone to see. So the second thing is we are to hold high the name of Jesus, which is the proclamation. So not only are we confirming the gospel, but we're going out and proclaiming the gospel and holding up this truth, this mystery of godliness. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So he describes it as, as great, as something to continue to confess, as a mystery because we still cannot and will not be able to articulate all of what God is doing. It's kind of that story of Saul in the beginning. He didn't know what God was doing, and the Lord slowly unpacked it for him. And for us, often I can't tell everything that the Lord's doing. I've had to say it so many times, often to say, I don't know. It's a really humbling position to be in, as a pastor, when someone comes to you and says, what does this mean? And I, I don't know, because the Lord has not revealed that yet. And there's so much to his character. And the more that I learn, it's greater and greater and greater. So often it's confusing because I think, why would God even allow us into this godliness anyways? So it's, it's humbling. Once we were godless and in his kindness, we have the honor of confessing godliness. That's what Paul is saying in this text. And then if you look at verse 16, Paul does something kind of uh, out of character for this text. It's not really out of character for him, but it's, it's a little weird in this context. Uh, he writes six lines that rhyme, and they don't rhyme in the English language, but the original text, these words start off, or these lines start off with a verb, and they're very similar in how it's structured. There's lots more to it than this. We could go through about 20 minutes on how he structured these last six lines in the text. But they all end in T-H-E. 
So what he's doing in modern day, or what we would say, is he's writing an elegant poem. It's very simple. Uh, but he does it in a very cool way to describe, or very clear way, to describe this mystery of godliness. And he, he writes about Jesus. And so he, he plays, again, this compare and contrast game. And so if you will look at this, every two lines go together. So we read, not only was Jesus manifested in the flesh, but he was vindicated and justified by the Spirit. Man and God. We have flesh and spirit. Next lines, he says that not only was he seen by spiritual beings, the angels, but he was proclaimed among the nations, right, to lowly men. So high and low, flesh and spirit. Fifth and sixth lines say, not only was he believed in the flesh by the world, but he was received or taken up in glory. So we have the world and we have glory. We have flesh and spirit. And so he paints Jesus as fully God and fully man. He shows Jesus as God, justified by the spirit of God, with the glory of God, and yet fully man, flesh and spirit, and so Paul takes a moment not to say, hey, let's talk about these guys that continue to cast lies upon us, but he, he recaps and says, what are you holding up? What is going to hold up you? Are you holding up the, as a pillar the truth of God who sits enthroned above the heavens as creator and as the greatest? And so he paints this picture of Jesus as the greatest, but he was low to be the least. Compare and contrast. He came to us as Emmanuel, God with us, but he was God from on high. And I think when I got to this in my study the last three weeks, that's what fired me up was this poem. I, I like to write, so that helps me just think, and that's the way that I see visually. And so when I get to this text, he's saying he's not only God, but he's man. It goes back to that him, that we're wretched and we're against God. We needed a savior. We had no hope of salvation or way to be restored. And he says, look at God's word. And I'll take you to First Peter because this is what came to mind when I was reading this text. First Peter 1, 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what a person, what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was to them, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things in which, into which angels long to look. And so when I read that, or remember that after reading 1 Timothy, what God is doing, he's giving the angels finally this authority to see after so long. They've been wondering, how are you going to do this, God? He didn't even give them the right to know. And he lets them look upon it. And then at the same time, they see and start to see this plan unravel, and they're getting excited, and they're worshiping and praising the Lord. He reveals it to who? 
to pagan men at the same time. People who were against God, just like Paul, he now invites us to, in to see what all of creation was longing and waiting for, groaning to say, what are you doing here, Lord? David often encapsulates that, that thought, and we talk about that all the time. When and how long, O oh Lord? And so I want to focus in on that idea this morning and maybe let you ponder that the rest of the week, that the idea that God did not even reveal to his angels how he would save his creation until Jesus appeared as a baby, that they were sitting on the edge of their seats as Jesus went to the cross and went to the tomb, and they're seeing this play out more and more like, oh, I see and I think of this multitude of heavenly hosts, these angels appearing on Christmas night and starting to see this thing that they long to know. And so they rejoice and praise the Lord in the beginning of this birth of Jesus. And they start to see this finally play out. I have this quote from Calvin. He says, referencing this verse, uh, 1 Timothy 3.16, he says, the most wonderful thing of all was that God should make his revelation known equally to pagan Gentiles and to angels who lived forever in his kingdom. It was no ordinary miracle that as a result of preaching the gospel, that Christ overcame obstacles and won over to obey the faith, those, it seemed, would never submit. And so that's where it stirred up in me, just what great depths and links that the Lord has gone to to provide a victorious way out of the darkness for us, right? And now brings us into healing and victory. It's the life of Paul, what we see visually for him. He was that walking parable of what the Lord has done for us in providing an eternal salvation, not, to, not a temporary fix. And so I want to turn to you and just address you in that and say, do you see what the Lord has done for you? that you are not outside of God's grace, if you feel that way this morning. I've had that conversation several times over the last few months, that that's great for the church, but I don't know that I'm included in that. We often look at the Israelites, or David, or Paul, or even these pagan Gentiles in Ephesus here, and we say, man, that is a miraculous story of how God has saved them. But then Paul's words, for Christ, what he's talking about here in verse 16, he says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So he went through great pains and struggles and humility for us, and he still accomplished the mission. He did it. An impossible task. And so for some of us, and I'm talking to a select few that there's been some different scenarios in Christchurch the last few months that have been difficult, maybe even you could say traumatic and bringing up past trauma. And we've had to sit in my living room and we have gone out and eaten tacos and cried together in public. Uh, I've been in your living room. You've, been, you've had the elders over and we've prayed over you. And if this isn't you that I'm talking about, I would just encourage you to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray for this church because... Satan has done a lot, and he does not like what the Lord is doing in this place. Uh, it's been quite a struggle. It's been very burdensome at moments, and yet I'm encouraged the whole time. 
because I'm getting this picture of what the Lord is doing here for the church of Ephesus through the works of Paul. And so some of your brothers and sisters, they don't see the way out right now. Um, they need your prayers. They need you to check on them. They need you to maybe not do anything but pray and beg the Lord to provide and to open up our eyes. And I think for a lot of us, we find ourselves, whether now or we have, that life seems bleak. It's, it's painful. That we're far too gone. And so what we do, me included, is we turn inward and we start to believe those lies. And so that's the reason that Paul comes to this young church and says, don't go there. We know how that ends. You have these guys that have train wrecked their life, shipwrecked is what he says in the first chapter, that because of lies and giving in to that, they have stopped confessing the love of Christ and they've turned to self. And he says, don't forget what the Lord has done, that if he can restore Israel, then he can restore you. If he's made a way in the desert and darkness to a people that he refers to previously as dogs and jackals, it's not too flattering. He can make a way for you. And so he says, lift high the name of Jesus. Don't cower under the weight of these false teachers and the lies, the attacks of the enemy, but stand firm. And this is an address to all of us. He's not just saying you, he's saying us. You need to hold each other up. I need to hold you up. You need to hold me up. I check on your family. You check on mine. When we're mourning, mourn together. When we're rejoicing, rejoice together. And he says, lift high the name of Jesus. And so I, I've had lots of these discussions, and it's a lot of addressing pride, even in myself. And that's been a prayer when I walk away from some of the conversations is, God, where is that in me? And we have to take on the parable here of what he's done to Paul and lay ourselves low to maybe sometimes be guided by hand. Maybe we're walking around blindly because life has absolutely taken us off of our feet. But it's arrogance at the end of the day. And he's addressing that directly to say, you are arrogant if you think you are out of, outside of the love of God that you think your sin and your scenario is stronger than the grace and power of the Lord, that you are not outside of the people that he came for. 1 Timothy 2.4, that he desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. You know John 3.16, that he desires none to perish. And then he says here in 1 Timothy 3.16, great Indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So great. It's unexplainable. It's huge. It's endless. It's more than we can take in and explain. And it's freely offered to you. And, but what he does is he calls us to repent. So it's not like, hey, here's this gift. It is for our taking, but he's like, I want you to do certain things to be able to enjoy it freely and fully. And he calls his church to repent. He calls people to repent. We hear that in John the Baptist. We hear that in Jesus. And Paul's saying the same thing, that these men failed because they have not repented. And so he calls us away from our old selves. So why do we keep picking up and putting back on those old things when we have freedom? Right? This is the thing that we seek. Why would we not take it on and continually be encouraged through it? And it's a painful process sometimes, just referring back to our last few months even, 
that life takes us off our feet. Sanctification and repentance is brutal. But it's far from easy, and he's awesome and faithful to take care of us. And so it's going to take time. Uh, Some of us have never been humbled in this way. Uh, You've never tried to quiet your life. That actually makes you squirm. Uh, When the music didn't start on that first song, some of us were like, oh, this is uncomfortable, right? (laughs) But the Lord is good. Dying to ourselves is ugly at moments. But watch and see what God does here. That's my encouragement to you or, or call. Just stick around. He's been doing it for years and years. And I think it's confusing at times because we want to make sense of it. But when a perfect and loving God extends to you grace, it just doesn't make sense. You know who you are. You've been exposed, and that's what the cross does. It exposes us. The life of Jesus exposes who we are, and it lays us low. And so Paul writes to this church knowing the same thing, that he he is called to protect and preserve the church in his absence, and he knows the struggles are real and present, and so his words today for us are just as applicable as they were 2,000 years ago. And so I want to end by asking that same question that I started with. What captivates your thoughts? What's your excitement and motivation for the week ahead? This isn't necessarily a negative question. I think it goes negative because that's what's captivating our thoughts. Maybe rephrased, what are you lifting high? Uh, What is the power behind your ability to stand strong under the weight of whatever is going on around us? And one of the surest ways to stand firm for this community and the world around us to see the goodness of God and for the church to be renewed continually is for us to grasp these things Paul is saying, that you are the household of God. You are the church of the living God. So be reminded of that this morning. You are a pillar, not an embarrassment, not a weak version of a man or a woman, but you are a pillar, a buttress of the truth. So I want to let that linger for your day. Would you consider those things that you spend time on something to lift high for all to see? Are those things that you pour into your schedule for the week, is that, that take up a majority of your focus, would you, would you say they're great? And that last line says, for great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this text. It's quite an encouragement in the, after coming off a few weeks of just really hard text, but necessary. And that is your goodness, and that's how you often work, Father, just seasons of grace, seasons of excitement. Father, those are great reminders for seasons that we go through that are painful. God, I pray that you would establish us as your church, as the church of the living God, as a family of God, Father, united together, that when we hurt, when we face trial, we do this together. And God, we would stand firm, not in ourselves, but through the salvation we have from your son, and that we would lift high the name of Jesus, that we would put him on display for all to see. Father, that even through our hurt, people would say, what is going on here? 
how can you even survive? God, I pray that you would protect us and preserve us, that you would preserve your word through us, that we would not put hindrances in the way of what your gospel is doing so that it transforms the hearts and lives of men, women, and children, not only in this city, but, Father, for the world. I pray that we would be a beacon of hope, a pillar of truth. God, I pray that you would minister to specific pain and joys in this room this morning. God, that we would worship in these next few songs because we realize what you've done for us and that you are Emmanuel, God with us in this room right now, that your spirit is living in us as temples. We are holding the living God. Wake us up to that this morning. We praise you for your power, your beauty, and your grace. Amen.